Good morning. This is Joe Moran with the Joe Moran Show. Uh, as always, coming to you from the Midwest on a beautiful, sunny, cool, uh, not windy day. Um, great show lined up. Great topics that are on the periphery of major changes, major shifts, major sea changes, right, and how we operate. And there's a few things that I really want to cover today. Um, you know, nothing that's going to get you super excited, but I think, but I think they're all meaningful in terms of laying the groundwork, laying the foundation for some of the things that we could be seeing over the next, let's call it, you know, 18 to 24 months. Um, Because that's really what we're looking at in terms of time horizon and how the new normal kind of gets hold, right? Um, establishes itself. I mean, we know where the world's headed. We know where things are trending, right? However, it doesn't all happen overnight, and it's going to be fits and starts. So this is really, today's discussion is going to be about, okay, so what are some of the key areas of interest or things that could percolate, things that could pop up, um, that could influence the next 18 to 24 months in terms of economic activity, whether it's from a business perspective, from a nation state perspective, or from a central bank perspective. So that's today's show. Those are kind of the areas. I know that's vague and I'll dive in deeper, but uh, super excited. Um, Had a great night watching football till midnight last night. Uh, I wish every Monday they had two games. Um, I think it would actually be a game changer. Go ahead and get rid of the Thursday game. Players don't want to play it. Uh, It's a pain in the ass, right? Injuries happen. They're not ready yet from the prior week. Um, Let's go ahead and just do two games on Monday night and fucking cap off a great weekend. What do you guys think? What do you think? But to get started with today's show, there's been rumblings coming out and you know you you heard the rumblings really probably for the past few months about India and crypto so in March of this year the 
Indian Supreme Court overruled the decision to ban crypto transactions. So in 2018, as India was trying to get their arms around their currency and try to position the the nation for sustained growth going forward, they banned uh, crypto transactions, so crypto trading. There was fraud, you know, and again, it had to be during this time where they were evaluating the currency, they were trying to figure out how to make it all digital, and there were some, you know, there was some activity that was fraudulent on the crypto front. And, you know, I even had this conversation with somebody the other day, and they're like, well, you know, fraud happens. That's why people use crypto. It's fraud. And I was like, well, not really. Um, you know, maybe one, two, three percent of all transactions are fraud related. I think it's I think it's actually one or less uh, on the Bitcoin space. And fiat currencies are actually easier to conduct fraud in because a physical dollar or rupee, if you will, can't be traced, can't be tracked, right? It's not tied to any algorithm that can track it. So fraud actually is easier to achieve in the fiat legacy world. But nevertheless, India banned it, crypto trading in 2018. In March of this year, that decision was reversed. And really since March, you know, let's call it June, July, there's been rumblings underneath the surface that India was going to revisit the ban. And, you know, the question is why? What has changed? What has changed since March that would uh, want them to go down this path? Because as we kind of step back and we look at what's happening around the world, you know, you've got a country like Kazakhstan that's going all in, right? They're fully embracing it because they know that, yes, Bitcoin specifically is a potential is a threat to the existing um, global monetary system but blockchain itself is a technology right that actually is better than the existing system so they want the technology and you know, the articles that are coming out say, well, look, we're not going to ban blockchain. We know there's value add there, um, but we want to get rid of the cryptocurrency trading. They want to get rid of the trading. So they really just want control, right? Um, and, and the question is why? That's the question. So... If you go and you start looking at 2020, 
rupee was trading in a range with the US dollar of let's call it you know 70.5 to kind of a 72 quality a number and it had really been in that range since the middle of 2019 okay so pretty consistent and in March when the dollar you know COVID-19 happens there's a huge dollar shortage in emergency markets and the dollar you know in terms of value jumps significantly and the rupee got punished right it went from you know 70 like I said it was trading between let's call it 70.5 and 72 and from the end of February when it was tracking at you know kind of 72.5 let's say and mid-April so April 20th we'll just pick April 20th so 72.5 to 76.3 I'm sorry 76.6 was the close that's a significant jump it's a, it's a significant jump and I mean, it's a it's almost a six percent jump and in a short period of time and that can cause real pain right to a to an economy and so the rupee was getting weaker now this helps India's export business but the amount of pressure that these moves in a currency can have on a nation state uh, especially an emerging market it can cause a lot of pain and suffering now since that time frame it's been coming back so the 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 rupee has been getting stronger and at the end of August it was at a 73.25 so you know it's clawed back um, three four percent but as the dollar continues to fluctuate within its range of let's call it 92 to 94 which is where it's been the rupee is now getting weaker again um, so I think you know I try to put myself in the Indian uh, in the government's position and to me it, it 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 says one thing india is looking around right at all the emerging markets and the respective currency crisis excuse me and covid-19 and india is getting crushed right people are getting sick they're dying things aren't getting better it's going to have a huge demand problem. Um, economies had to be shut down. So this means helicopter money and whatever else, right? I mean, we know it's going to happen. These governments don't have any other choice. So 
India is surveying the landscape. They're looking at Lebanon. They're looking at Turkey. They're looking at Sudan. They're looking at Argentina. And they see the currency crises that are happening. They see them. And they know that once it starts to unwind... that it's hard to get back in control. And especially if there's an exit for the people of that country. And I think, you know, I don't know anything. I don't have any inside information, right? Um, but to me, this screams like it's a preemptive move because India I mean, honestly, you go back to March and they could say, look, our currency was 6% weaker because we're allowed in crypto trading. I mean, they could say that. It's, it's couldn't be further from the truth, but, you know, that could be their position. And the challenge is for these governments is once their people start to exit, it just creates a feedback loop that um, becomes more and more difficult, right, for the governments to get their arms wrapped around. And so to me, it feels, it feels like a preemptive move. Now, I don't know enough about the judicial system in India or the political system in India where, you know, the Supreme Court if the Supreme Court in the United States says, look, this activity is allowed, then you can't just go in Congress and put a bill in place when the Supreme Court is allows it, right? That's why we got three form, you know, three branches of government, each has an equal voice. So I'm not sure if the parliament can just say, Well, forget what the Supreme Court said we're the ones that dictate the rules and we're going to say that it's banned. Um, it's possible. Uh, it's possible they do that. Uh, and then I think it's probable that it gets challenged. Right? Um, I think it's likely it gets challenged because when you go to ban activity that your populace wants I mean it's to me it's no different than you know the prohibition period in the 1920s or marijuana today banning doesn't work right it doesn't work um, if people if citizens want something they're going to find a way right and it's because people are more nimble, they're more agile, decentralization. And I think that this is actually extremely bullish for Bitcoin. And it's probably making some people nervous, but I think it's actually bullish because let's say the ban happens, it goes through. Okay, well, if you're in India and you have Bitcoin, well, you can go to 
other Asian countries, right, to get more. And I don't know what the rules are and what the law is going to look like. I don't think anybody does. But you can go to another country, transact in it, um, no problem. They're not going to be able to take your keys, right? And so what's going to happen is you're still going to have capital flight in India, right? If, if. If it starts to get out of control, there's still going to be capital flight. And people will find ways to buy Bitcoin. And what's going to happen is, yes, the capital flight is going to occur. The governments are going to try to tighten even more and more and more. Um, but what they're going to realize is they can't unwind it. Right? They can't go possess somebody else's keys they can't get access to those uh, to those dollars or the rupees or whatever else right they cannot get access to the bitcoin um, and so once they realize once the government realize that they don't have control and they can't stop the capital flight because they're not going to be able to stop it let's be honest they're just not then what follows is the embrace, right? So once you realize that you can't solve for it, you can't stop it, what you wanted to accomplish isn't going to work, then you have no... You have no path other than embracing the technology, the crypto technology or Bitcoin or trading. Um, because, again, if people want something, they're going to figure out a way to get it. They just will. Um, it's, I mean, it's happened, it's happened too many times. Too many times has that happened. So it's something that we'll be watching, that we'll be talking about. You know, there was something else that I saw over the weekend. Um, I need to read the article. It was in German, but, you know, Germany's talking about banning it. And it's it feels a lot like the IRS right before tax season where there's you know these releases these press releases that come out that say Wesley Snipes has been busted for tax evasion or some famous person and it really just has to do with being a scare tactic that's what it feels like to me um, because these governments I mean they're more knowledgeable let's be honest they're more knowledgeable about crypto and Bitcoin than they were four years ago five years ago I don't think there's any question about that, right? Um, they have somebody watching it. They probably understand the dynamics, um, how the price moves, etc. So I think it's interesting that you're starting to get this talk of a ban. One, right in the middle or right at the beginning of a bull run, which could go, I mean, just could fucking skyrocket right 
and as Preston Pish would say, hit escape velocity at 500, 600, 700,000. So it could be that, or it could be because of these looming currency crises that are happening and are going to continue to happen in um, not only larger emerging markets like India or in developed uh, countries with um, relatively stable currencies historically. But I just think it's fascinating, right? And, and again, that we know the system's going to break. Uh, we know the existing system isn't sustainable. And the question is, okay, well, what's the future system look like? Well, you have countries like Kazakhstan that are embracing crypto, embracing Bitcoin, etc. And then you have countries like India that view it as a threat. And in the kind of post-legacy system, it's probable, we don't know, but it's likely that the country with the progressive kind of forward-thinking approach is going to be better off. And so we'll see. It's something that we'll track. Um, you know, I don't know if, who knows, right, if this ban actually goes through. You know, I suspect that they'll try. I suspect that it'll get challenged to the Supreme Court. And, you know, we'll just kind of see what the, where the law shakes out and what happens. But I do think in the long term, it's frivolous because you can't stop innovation. You can't stop the global system from breaking. And you can't stop people and individuals from purchasing something that they ultimately want. They will find a way to do it. And so, yeah, it's going to sound sexy. Um, India with the ban and everybody's going to say, look, Bitcoin can be banned, whatever. Um, but it's mostly just bullshit, right? Mostly bullshit. So in terms of the U.S. and what's happening here, you know, it's sort of same old, old story. So today... The FOMC, or today, tomorrow, the FOMC is meeting, um, having conversations about their new, let's call it, uh, policies on inflation and um, employment targets. And... It's hard to really pin down what exactly, you know, is, is Powell going to talk about? What's the messaging going to be post-conference? You know, I suspect there's going to be a couple things that come out of it. One is, okay... We didn't give you a lot of details on how we're going to hit kind of our average 2% inflation. We've never hit 2% inflation. So how are we going to hit 2% inflation um, given the deflationary uh, 
situation that we're in from the COVID-19, mass unemployment, as well as the demographics associated with that. Um, you know, yeah, we've never been able to hit it before, but this is how we plan on hitting it. So I think you're going to get some clarity and we'll get some clarity on the inflation front. Um, I think they're going to have to. I think they're going to have to speak to it. Uh, I also think that Powell is going to lay on thick kind of the the current environment of the economy and how there are significant portions of the economy that are struggling um, from a demand perspective and the need for, for fiscal stimulus. So I think he's going to be even more direct uh, to Congress and to Mnuchin to get something done. I think he has to be. Uh, he's just going to be, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be boring and it's going to be repetitive and it's going to sound like he's saying the same thing over and over and over again, which is what he's been saying for the past two to three months, um, is there's a real need for more fiscal stimulus. There just is. And and he's got to put the pressure on. It's got to be a combination of him the market and Trump's inability uh, to improve in the polls that gets this thing across the finish line. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't see, I don't see any other way forward, especially because he knows that they've got to get something done, or the economy could get wrecked. Right, everything that they work for in March, you know, the boldness, the aggressiveness, all of those things could go out the window. All of the work could go out the window if there's not fiscal stimulus. And so I suspect that he's going to talk about that significantly and he's going to lay it on thick. Um, you know, he's going to talk about interest rates and being low for a substantial period of time, you know, three to five years, you know, we all know that they can't afford for rates to rise, right? The debt's too high More, you know, the government is essentially insolvent now, um, due to their interest payments being greater than tax receipts. This isn't going to be reversed, right? Like, I mean, it's it, it's a new paradigm. So, I mean, he's going to get into that. But honestly, it's going to be inflation, low interest rates, the economy suffering, the change in unemployment is slowing down. Um, things aren't getting better as quickly as they need to get better, despite what Trump says, despite what Kushner says, despite what Mnuchin says, even though I think Mnuchin's a little more realistic. Um they're going to be putting lots of pressure. He's going to put a lot of pressure on the uh, uh, on the Congress. Has to. And so all of these things, and hopefully he'll provide some real clarity on the inflation target piece, but all of these things 
tell you that the economy is in trouble, you know, continues to be in trouble, and they're going to do more stimulus, whether, you know, certainly know they're going to do it from a monetary standpoint, and there's still a need on the fiscal front. So that's what they're telling you. You know, that's exactly what they're telling you. exactly it so we'll see we'll be talking about it I'm looking really looking forward to the I'm really looking forward to the conference um, to hear kind of his message but I think we know kind of the direction uh, it's just what's going to be the impact and so you know today the dollar has been super volatile um, it was really going down getting weaker and then it popped up this morning I think you're going to continue to see this dollar fluctuation through the speech. I mean, honestly, it's just trading in a range. You know, gold is up, Bitcoin's up. So, you know, these things are, I think, trading, trading somewhat preemptively. Um, somewhat preemptively, they're trading ahead of tomorrow's tomorrow's speech by by pal uh, right now i mean bitcoin is a little over you know 10 10 8 and this morning it was over 10 9 so again you know it's trading up um and it's trending in the right direction now yes it's possible that bitcoin is moving because of the Fed, and we know, I mean, we know it's moving because of the Fed, but I'm talking about specifically tomorrow. Um, but what's interesting is Michael uh, Saylor, the CEO of MicroStrategies, who purchased $250 million worth of Bitcoin in the past, you know, let's call it 30 days ago. Um, I should have that in front of me. I don't, but I mean, we talked about it. Everybody was talking about it. Uh, you know, major company putting a significant position of Bitcoin on their com company balance sheet as a inflation hedge and dollar hedge, right? Well, <laughs> it's funny. He announced today that um, they've put another, an additional... 175 million dollars into bitcoin so they have a combined position of approximately 425 million bitcoin i mean it is just it's it is a staggering um it is a staggering sum of money staggering and it's paving the way for other companies to be bold and like I said I know I know private companies that are holding Bitcoin on their balance sheets not to this scale but um I mean, they're, they're protecting their cash reserves 
through the purchase of Bitcoin. And Michael Saylor now owns, and MicroStrategy now owns 38,250 Bitcoin. I mean, it's un, it is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And I don't know, you know, I don't know when other companies start to follow the lead. I mean, I know Preston Pish thinks it's at the end of this year once it breaks the all-time high. And then you got companies like Apple and Google and Facebook actually putting Bitcoin on their balance sheets. Um, but I think this is going to continue to happen. And, and as the price rises and the dollar continues to weaken, um, it's, it is an inevitability, um, in my opinion. But, I mean, these are, that's a significant position. $425 million is a significant position. It's a significant position. So, you know, you see these things, and when I see them, I just get more excited, right? The entrenchment, you know, we talk about India wanting to ban it. Well, great, you know. Go ahead and try to ban it. Because you got companies like MicroStrategy that are putting significant positions. I mean, that's a significant position on its corporate balance sheet. And other corporations and other organizations are only going to follow. They will. So... I, it's, it's just one of those things where you're like, holy shit, you know, especially as, as we kind of look back during this period of time and we look at people that were making bold moves, were they successful? Were they not? Did progress and positive outcomes happen to those that were bold or did it did progress and good outcomes happen to those that maintain the status quo and honestly I, I think that's something that um, we're going to think a lot about when we kind of look back at 2020 and that leads me to old Jamie Diamond, my friend from J.P. Morgan. So they're starting to bring their workers back. And Jamie is saying, well, you're going to have ex you know, poor economic outcomes and social outcomes if people continue to work from home and aren't working... Um, back on site with their respective companies. And, you know, I, I read this, and honestly, it just makes me laugh, right? Um, because 
what are the motivations for this type of decision? And what he's saying. Look, the banks are fucked when it comes to commercial real estate. Right? They have huge amounts of debt. Huge amounts of debt that they're owed covering commercial real estate. If organizations and companies pursue and move forward, which they'll do because it's in their long-term best interest from a P&L perspective, with people working from home, then the banks are fucked. They're fucked, right? They're going to lose the asset because they're not going to be able to provide the loans in their balance sheet. The ones that can't pay their rent, the banks are going to have write-offs. And so he's right that there's going to be real economic pain, um, but it's real economic pain for the banks. It's not real economic pain for the businesses because there's no reason to continue to work at a commercial real, you know, at a, uh, at a company um, and be on site. There's no need for it today. And so I see that and I just say, look, man, this guy, this is a company that only cares about its own self-interest, which is fine, right? I mean, they're responsible for the shareholders. They need to make sure that they're delivering the most value to the shareholders. That's the job, right? But when you look at kind of the stakeholders at play, and how are they going to react? And you come back to game theory and you start understanding how the players are going to move. It just doesn't make any sense, right? He's looking at his own balance sheet and he's trying to understand how do I make up kind of the gaps in the balance sheet? Well, I better start championing um, going back to work, working from an office, or else there's going to be some real holes uh, one year, two years, three years later, right? He's trying to kill the trend that was already in place due to technology. Look, younger people, we don't want to work in an office. Why would you work in an office for eight hours a day? The only real value is the social aspect, which is critical. I mean, it, you know, I talked about it yesterday. Isolation is real right? And the impact on your mental health is real. So I agree, that's real. Um, but I think even from a work from home standpoint, you could get that in a non-COVID world by having your interaction with your friends and your family. Um, you could have more coffee shop meetings. I mean, actually, it'd be a lot more interesting as an individual um, with that flexibility. But the social piece is real. But the economic piece for anybody other than a bank and anybody that doesn't own the real estate, the commercial real estate, is actually better off in a work-from-home scenario. And so he's trying, to, he's trying to change the direction of the wind, but it's going to be fruitless. It's going to be fruitless. I mean, these are the things that we're going to hear. And... 
you're going to hear and see things like this come out from people that are um, ingrained to the existing system that are so afraid to change that are so afraid to change they're just going to hold on tighter and tighter and tighter to the existing system and when you see these types of things right when you see this activity and you understand it, then it presents real opportunities, significant opportunities. And I get it, right? If I was Jamie Diamond, I'd be looking at my balance sheet. I'd be looking at all the fucking bad loans, potential bad loans. I'd be looking at those assets, you know, what's impaired, what's not impaired. I'd be looking at the lost interest income from those loans, right? Not only when they go bad, but three years from now when people don't renew their leases, don't take out debt. And, you know, not only is real estate impaired and, and, and commercial real estate impaired, But banks are impaired as well because it's such a hard, it's such a significant segment of their business. So it's fascinating. Like I, I, I kind of I sit back and I look at all these things that are happening, who the players are, and it's the ones that are so entrenched in the legacy system that they don't understand how the world's changing. And those are the ones that actually present the most opportunity because you know, you can feel it, you can sense it, you can see it, you can see the change. And as those individuals that are holding tighter and tighter and tighter, that just means that the opportunity is getting bigger and bigger and bigger for you if you're willing to make the decisions to capitalize on the opportunities. So that's it for today's show. Uh, you know, I was thinking about talking about Trump and um, his non-belief in science, but I will probably save that for tomorrow. Um, however, you know, I hope everybody has a wonderful, wonderful afternoon. It's stunning outside uh, here. I'm going to enjoy it and work from home. Um outside in 70 degree weather instead of being locked up in a uh, in a conference room but uh hope everybody is crushing it and until tomorrow let's keep our ears to the grindstone